0: Thank you so much. If you would turn to the very end of your Bible, Revelation 22, and I'd like to read the last words of this last chapter in the Bible. I think this passage is a fitting passage in light of our talk about mission trips, uh, whether they're organized by... A Christian College, or organized by a family that wants to love their family. Um, this passage is an encouragement to us all, I think, as we think about our own ministry to people around us who don't know Christ. And so let me read for us verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Verse 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been going through the book of Revelation, and now we're at the very end of the book. The book of Revelation is an unveiling. That's what the word revelation means. It means unveiling. It's the unveiling of who Jesus really is. It's the unveiling of who Christians really are. Because the world does not really understand who Jesus is or believe in what the Bible says about Jesus. And they don't believe what the Bible says about Christians either. And yet the book of Revelation says that there is going to be an unveiling one day. Uh, when Christ returns, when when the world will see who Jesus really is and who his people really are as well. This book is also about encouragement. It's about encouragement for suffering saints because the Bible uh, in this book talks a lot about overcoming, that there's the opposition of the beast from the sea, which represents the anti-Christian government the beast from the land, which represents false religion, which opposes, obviously, Christians and Christ and Christianity. Um, there's also the picture of the um, beauty, the, the, the harlot, which is the appeal of worldly culture that seeks to draw people away from God and from Christ. And so it's a book about all the enemies of God, and all the enemies of those who are the people of God. And so it's an encouragement to realize that we live in a world that is not safe territory. We live in enemy territory in the sense that the Bible says this world is um, governed, so to speak, ruled by the, the prince of the power of the air, obviously under the sovereignty of God so, therefore, um, the world, the flesh, and the devil opposes all those who trust Christ and seek to follow him and seek to undermine that faith and seek to draw us away from Christ. But this book also talks about the end of all things. How is this fallen world going to end up? Some people think we're just going to blow ourselves up, you know, through a nuclear holocaust. Uh, some people think everything's going to fall apart Um, And we're going to be this this dystopian type society that you see in movies sometimes. Well, the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells us how it is all going to end. And yet the end is going to be a beginning, the beginning, beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. And so what I'd like to do this morning in this last message is to talk about these last verses, but before I get into these last verses that we just read, I want to set the context, because the context is the whole chapter, obviously, the whole book really, but the whole chapter of chapter 22, and I want just to begin by highlighting verses 1 through 5 and remind us of what we've already talked about there. The reality is, all of us want to be happy. Everybody in this room wants to be happy, and yet... We are prone to think that we can be happy apart from God, we're prone to think that we can be happy by pursuing sin, we're prone to think that we can be happy, fully happy in a fallen world, and all those things are lies. We can't be happy apart from God. We can't be happy simply pursuing what God says is wrong and evil, and we can't, expect to be fully happy here in this fallen world, even as Christians. And that's why we have at the very end of this book a description of a new heaven and a new earth where there is truly perfect, full, and lasting happiness. And that's what you see in chapter 21 and in the first five verses of chapter 22. It talks about a river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It talks about the tree of life. There no longer being any curse, no longer being any night. It says that the people of God will serve him, worship him. They will reign with him. They will see his face and they will have his name on their forehead, which means that we will be like him and we will be satisfied with him. The beatific vision, as theologians have called it, is the perfect happiness of those who see God face to face. That is truly the answer to the longing of our hearts for happiness, is to see God and to see him smiling back at you and to know he loves you and he loves you perfectly and he will love you forever. That will be perfect happiness. And so that is the hope that we have as Christians. That is part of what the future holds, a new heaven and a new earth for all those who have been made right with God through his son. And so what we see at the end of this chapter, that is the first part of the context, is that there is a promise, a hope of heaven on earth, of the satisfaction of our souls. And yet, We might ask the question, what is that going to look like? Uh, What is heaven on earth going to really be like? Well, in one sense, it's going to be similar to what we experience now. There's some continuity. And I think the resurrection of Jesus is meant to communicate that aspect of it. He's raised from the dead. He's in his glorified body. He appears to the disciples, and they're afraid that he's just a, a spirit. He says, you know, spirits don't have bodies like I do. I'm not just a spirit. I've truly been resurrected from the dead. And he says, touch my hand, my side. And then he says, do you have anything here to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats the fish. So he's saying there's some continuity, even in our glorified bodies with what we experience here. And yet the Bible also says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. So there's continuity, but there's also newness. There's a difference. It's better than we can imagine. It's greater than we can imagine. It's all the good things about this life, but multiplied infinitely in greater deeper richer ways and that's why it says in psalm 16 you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy In your right hand there are pleasures forever that's a picture of what god has promised us when it says the water of life and the ri-, or the river of the water of life and the tree of life that verse says you will make known to me the path of life And life is found in God, with God, fellowshipping with God and all that's pictured here. It's a glorious, wonderful thing, and yet we cannot put it into words. And that's why I like what C.S. Lewis says at the end of his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, where he says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. So why do we have pictures in the book of Revelation? because they cannot be written in a way that we could fully understand them. But God gives us pictures. It gives us an idea, a taste of what it's going to be like, but it's going to be so much greater, so much grander. Things that are similar to what we know and yet much greater than what we can even imagine. So that's part of the context for what we find at the very end. But another part of that context is also verses 6 through 16 where it talks about the return of Christ. Uh, Twice in these verses, uh, the Lord Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And it says, the time is near. Uh, These things must soon take place. But it says, especially in verse 12, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came the first time, he came that he might show mercy. At that point, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but I came that the world might be saved in that first coming. But in the second coming, the Bible does say, and Jesus does say, he will come to judge. And so the warning is, that we need to realize that God never just sweeps sin under the rug. He never just says, oh, well, sinners will be sinners. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls or whatever. And therefore, God being holy and just has to deal with sin. But he sent Jesus the first time so that sin could be dealt with in such a way that we could have mercy So that Jesus took the punishment on the cross for all those who would trust in him. But for those who refuse that provision, there still has to be a payment. So the word reward there means payment for work done. For believers, it's a gracious payment or gracious reward for faithfulness. For unbelievers who have refused the mercy of God in Jesus, it is a just consequence for their sin. This is actually pictured in the parable of the Minas, uh, which is in Luke 19, where it talks about, it actually starts off by saying, um, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to, to appear immediately. And so Jesus tells this parable because everybody expected the kingdom of God to come very, very soon. And he told a parable saying, no, it's going to be a while. And so he tells this parable of a nobleman. He says a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He went away for a long time and then he comes back. But before he goes away, he finds 10 of his servants and he gives each of them a mina which is a um, form of money of that day and time. And he says, I want you to take this mina and invest it. Use it. Uh, Be a good steward steward of it until I get back. And so after a long time, he comes back and he calls these servants to account. And one says, "Um, your mina was invested, master, and I have 10 more minas. And The master says, that's great, well done, you'll be in charge of ten cities. The next one comes and says, mina, your master was invested and and it produced five more minas. He says, that's great, well done, you get to be in charge of five cities. Which is a picture of being rewarded according to your faithfulness. That's what the picture is there. But then there's another servant that comes and says, You know, Master, I took that money you gave me and I stuck it in the ground. Didn't do anything with it. And he says, because I was afraid. Because I know that you are a... uh, He said this, I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. Which basically means, I know you're a taker, not a giver. You take... You don't give. There would be no reward for me if I worked hard and invested your mina. I stuck it in the ground. So the reason why I didn't do anything with the mina is your fault. Because you're not a good master. That's really the argument in that parable. You can go back and read it in Luke 19. Obviously, the master does not respond favorably to that excuse. And that's a picture of the fact that Jesus will return. He will reward those who are faithful because of their faith in him. But he will also appropriately judge those who accuse God of unseemliness, do not trust him and do not use their life for his glory because they accuse God of being unworthy of their efforts of unworthy of their life, of unworthy of their trust and their love. And so that's a picture of what is taking place right here at the end of the book of Revelation. And so there are two basic messages you could argue from the book of Revelation that we as believers in Jesus, all those who profess faith in Jesus, are to recognize that life in this fallen world is going to be hard. We shouldn't be, should not be surprised that our faith is opposed, but we are called to trust God through it all to the very end. That's why Jesus could say, he who endures to the end will be saved. So that's one big message of the book of Revelation. The other big message is that there is a judgment coming, but you can escape that judgment. Because there is something offered you and that's what these last verses talk about that there is an offer of mercy to us and so if you look would look again at uh, verses 17 through 21 the message to uh, believers is to overcome by faith the message to unbelievers is to take the water of life while there's still time if you note in uh, these verses and the last verses of the Bible, there are three references to coming. The, in verse 17, it says, "The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. So you have that coming. But then, if you go look beyond that, you have Jesus in verse 20 saying, I am coming. And then lastly, you have Uh, believers saying, come Lord Jesus. So you have an invitation to come. You, You have the declaration that Jesus is going to come. And then you have the prayer, come. So it's all about coming in these last verses. And what we find in these verses is we find in the context of the promise of heaven on earth and the reality of a judgment that is to come We have the free offer of the gospel, which is what uh, reformed theologians have talked about in various ways is the free offer of the gospel. Now, one of the things that is interesting among those who are reformed in their theology is that there's been debate in various ways over how we how are we to understand uh, certain tensions in scripture? Because obviously you can just read even the book of Revelation and you find where it says that the names in the Lamb's book of life were there before the foundation of the world. Or you read in the book of Acts that um, all those who were appointed unto life, eternal life, believed. And so you've got very, very clear teaching in the Bible that... In Ephesians 2, that we're dead in sin. Which means we will not come to God for mercy on our own. We don't want God. We don't want to trust God. We don't want anything to do with God. We're naturally haters of God. Maybe not consciously, so to speak, but certainly practically. That's our natural condition. Therefore, the only way we will ever come to Christ is if we're raised from the dead by the power of God. And that's why it says in Ephesians 2 that he has raised us from the dead and given, given us life. And yet sometimes people will understand that glorious grace truth. We sang about glorious grace. And they'll think, well, that must mean that I really don't have any good news to share with people indiscriminately because I don't know whether or not they're one of the elect. But I think um, someone this week I read kind of summed it up really well when they said the good news of the gospel is offered freely to all people without distinction. Some high Calvinists have objected to this doctrine on the grounds of God's sovereign election, the doctrine of the particular atonement, the primacy of divine initiative, and the sinner's complete inability to respond in faith apart from God's regenerating grace, which we would all affirm. However, the reality is that sinners are all called to believe and are judged for their unbelief, not for whether or not they are elect. It is actually within the context of the universal refusal of man to believe that the doctrines of election, the atonement, and the sovereign initiative of God are most needed. These doctrines provide the solution to man's refusal, not a reason to avoid the offer of the gospel in the first place. So he's basically arguing that it's because of the doctrines of grace that we freely offer the gospel and have any hope that anyone will believe. And that it is appropriate as representatives of, of Christ to actually picture God with his arms open and ready to receive. Anyone who will believe that that is the picture that we find in the gospel. That is what we see pictured for us even at the very end of the Bible. And so when we think about this, we think about the reality that at the very end of the book, after all has been said and done, talk about heaven, talk about judgment. What we find at the end is an invitation to life an invitation to life. To me, that's no insignificant thing. The Bible ends that way. Um, My family, some of us in our family, uh, watched a Netflix series recently, and it was kind of an odd situation because they showed like the three and a half seasons were done, and then, then they took a break and then completed the... the the fourth season. So we had to wait for the end of the series to find out what in the world are they trying to say through this series. And in my mind, it was very important to see how they ended the story so that I could understand the story. To me, that's what we have right here. If we don't understand the story of the Bible, then we need to look at the ending. It says very clearly that the story of the Bible is about bringing heaven back to earth. It's about a coming judgment, but it is very much about the fact that we need mercy. And that mercy has been provided for us through Jesus. And so when it says in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come which is a command, an exhortation, an encouragement, a pleading, come. The Spirit highlights it's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who's saying, come. So, Do you understand that? The Spirit says, come. To who? Everybody who hears. The Spirit of God is saying, come. And how is he saying that? He's saying that through the bride. Who's the bride? The church of Christ as a whole. The church of Christ as a whole is saying come. And God is saying come to Christ through the church. It also says, and let the one who hears say come. Which makes it more individual. It's an individual believer who says come. So that when we gather together as a church, God is speaking through the church and saying to unbelievers, Come to Jesus for life. And then when we go to India and we have a discussion with one of our family members or one of our friends, and we individually say, Come to Jesus for life. That's the picture that's being painted there. That's what that is all about. It's the free offer of grace, the free offer of the gospel. To me, the last words in the Bible are so important because... I compared it to other last words, like when Zechariah was stoned in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles. He was a prophet of God. He gets stoned. And his last words, May the Lord see and avenge. May the Lord bring justice upon you. In contrast to Stephen, when he was stoned, what did he say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. One is a call for justice. The other is a call for mercy. It encourages me as a sinner who deserves the wrath and hell of God that the last word in the Bible is an offer of mercy. It encourages me, and I hope it encourages you. It also encourages me that in Ezekiel, a couple times... Uh, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? In Ezekiel 33, it says something similar. Say to them, he tells Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I love the fact that the God who is truly God that we worship is a rather God. Will he bring justice if he must? Yes, but he would rather show mercy. He's a rather God. So we should proclaim the fact that there is judgment coming, but also proclaim the fact that God would rather show mercy. And that's what Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus is all about. The true God is the one who would rather that you and I repent and live. What about the water of life? Verse 17 talks about the fact that the call of the church, the call of individual believers, and, and the call of God through the church and individual believers is a call to take the water of life. Growing up in Louisiana, uh, summers could be brutal. And I mowed grass in the summertime to earn money, and I played football, and so I had two days, and it got hot. And after mowing and after playing football in the heat of the Louisiana summers, I would be thirsty for water. There was nothing that tasted better than cold water on those days. There was a real thirst generated by those activities. The question is what is this water of life that is meant to quench our thirst? And the water of life is actually a person. That there's nothing in this life and no one apart from the person I'm talking about that can quench the thirst that you and I have for peace, for joy, for life. I get this. All kinds of scriptures talk about it. But Jeremiah chapter two, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's interesting to me that God calls evil what he calls evil. We think evil is Hitler and the Holocaust, and it is. But God right there says, you know what's really evil? What is at the heart of all evil? What's at the heart of all sin? It's an exchange that says, I don't want God I don't believe he's the fountain of living water. I think I can find life apart from God. So I'm going to make my own cistern. I'm going to catch my own water and I'll be okay. I'll be fine. And God says, the only cisterns people make are broken cisterns that can hold no water, that cannot satisfy. And the evil of our sin is the rejection of life. It's the rejection of happiness. It's the rejection of peace. It's the rejection of good. That's what is evil. And that's why God opposes evil, because he's the very good that he wants you and me to enjoy. And so he opposes it with all his heart. The true God is truly the fountain of living waters. And so when Jesus says, take the water of life, he's saying, receive me. And just like he told Peter on the night that he was betrayed, I will cleanse you and I will satisfy you. You can't have a part of me unless I clean you up. And so he came to do what he could only do for us, that we might be cleaned up that we might enjoy him and drink from that fountain and know the happiness that our hearts long for it. So how do we receive this? Well, it's interesting that it says, let the one who is thirsty come. This is verse 17 still. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So basically you have to need it. And you have to want it. If you don't need it, if you don't want it, then you're not going to ask for it. And you're not going to pursue it. And you're not going to respond to the offer. Right now, uh, Bud Light is going through a rough time. Uh, Sales of Bud Light have gone down because of the the Dylan Mulvaney controversy. Uh, People are saying, I can do without Bud Light. I don't need Bud Light. I don't thirst for Bud Light anymore. I'll be fine with something else. That is essentially what Jeremiah is talking about, that sinners, all of us as sinners, naturally say, I don't need God. I'll be fine without God. I can find life or whatever I need apart from God, apart from Jesus, God's son that he sent. And therefore, the real need in order to drink is to actually know that you need it, that you have a thirst for that water and that you desire it strongly enough to actually receive the one who is the living water. Why is that so difficult? Because the one who is the living water is also the Lord of all. And to receive the fountain of living water is to receive his rule and reign over your life. So some people might say, I kind of like the idea of the living water. I'm just not so sure I like the idea of the Lord of all. You might remember the woman at the well who Jesus engages her he talk a little bit and then he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which means that Jesus says, I'm the source of living water. Indeed, I am the living water and all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is see your need for it. And if you look at the conversation that goes on beyond that, Jesus is basically just highlighting her need for him, her need for a savior, her need for the Messiah. And so the real issue is, do I really think I need anything beyond this life, beyond myself? Do I really think I need a savior Do I really need to be forgiven? Do I really need a righteousness that I don't have? Do I really believe that to receive the Lord of heaven, that it would actually bring me heaven if I received him? There's another parable that we're familiar with where you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. The Pharisee says, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people. I do this and I do that, which basically says I'm good on my own. I don't really need anything from God. In fact, God ought to be thankful that that I follow him because I do so much for the church. And I'm such a great testimony of what it means to be a follower of God. It's essentially what the Pharisee was saying. Then you got the tax collector who says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the man asking for mercy, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can picture it as the river of the water of life. The only way you can drink from that river is if you get get down on your knees. And drink. If you refuse to get down on your knees, you cannot drink from that river. But everyone who is willing to get down on his knees and drink can drink. Everyone. Which is good news for all of us. Well, let me just connect for us uh, what it says next because it seems kind of abrupt. Um, This warning in verse 18. It says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. It goes on, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. So what is that all about? Well, you know, it says uh, at the end of verse 17, let the one who wishes... Take the water of life. What's the picture there? It's kind of like when we do the Lord's Supper, um, Scott, Eric, they go around and they hold out the plate. And you take it or you don't. But it is offered to you. And that's the picture that we have here, is that you've got God the Holy Spirit, through the bride, through individual believers, through the proclamation of the gospel, offering the water of life in the person of Jesus. And we can take it or not. But some of us, like Amal and Suda were sharing, think we take it by earning it. We take it by working for it. We take it by fasting and doing other things. But it says no. You take it without cost. You don't take it by earning it or, or doing anything to merit it at all. To take it by, without cost means you take it simply by faith. You receive it by faith alone. And no works, no effort, no merit on our part. We just receive it by faith. We just entrust ourselves to Jesus and Jesus alone because he says we can. He says, I offer myself to you. Just rest in me alone by faith and you will have me. You'll have the water of life and I will cleanse you and I will satisfy you. And so it's without cost. And, and yet... It goes on to talk about if you hear this prophecy and you add to what's said here, God will add to you the plagues. And if you take away from what is said here, God will take away your part in the tree of life. What's that all about? It's about the reality that faith that saves is a faith that, takes the water of life by taking God at his word. That's what it means. In essence, it means taking God at his word regarding Jesus. But if you read the Reformed Confessions, they very clearly say that saving faith is a faith that takes the Bible, God's word, as God's word. And so a saving faith is a faith that That sees this book as important, sees this book as inspired, as given us from God as without error, uh, perfect and worthy of our trust and worthy of our obedience. And therefore, we will not just haphazardly add to it or take from it. Now, we may make some mistakes, but it will not be our heart to simply dismiss it and Uh, denigrate it or ignore it or pervert it at all. But we will value and treasure it because there's a connection that the Bible makes. And if you read John, and obviously Revelation was written by John through God's inspiration. But you read the Gospel of John, it's very clear that the written word is connected to the living word. Jesus is the living word of God. He's the word of God fleshed out visualized for us, animated for us, but he reflects everything in the written word. And it's very, very clear that you cannot reject the Bible, the written word of God, dismiss it, minimize it, say it's not important, and still receive the living word. There's a very, very close connection between the two, and I believe that's the implication of what's being said there that's why the lord jesus in matthew 7 could talk about the um those who are foolish and those who are wise and he talks about it in terms of builders he says there are those who build on the rock and then there are those who build on sand both of them experience storms but those who build on the sand their house is destroyed those who build on the rock, their houses stay in the storm. And that rock, Jesus says, is his word. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so basically what we have here is a picture of someone who, whose life is shaped by receiving the water of life. Um, I grew up in, in Louisiana, as I mentioned. My first church that I pastored was a little country church. And the farmers in that area, my dad talked about this too, he grew up in a farming area. Uh, they drank coffee for breakfast, uh, for break time in the morning, for lunch time, for break time in the afternoon, for uh, supper, as we call it in the South, and before they went to bed. Uh, their life was, revolved around coffee. They drank from it all day long. That's the picture that we have here, is that if we receive the living water, our lives will be shaped with it, around it. It will sustain us and and drive us throughout our lives. Well, let me uh, close with this as we wrap up this morning. So ultimately, what are the implications of this? What determines our end? The book of Revelation is talking about the end, the end of this fallen world and then the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. But what determines our end individually? And the implication is, what determines our end personally is what we do with the offer of life in Jesus, what do we do? Uh, For those of us who've seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies or read the books, there's a scene in which one character named Galadriel and the other character of Frodo are interacting. And she lets him look into this pool of water, which is a a kind of mirror. And um, he sees the past and the present and the future. And at the end of that, he's kind of scared by the future. And what she says to him is, it is what you've seen, Frodo, it is what will come to pass if you should fail. What does the book of Revelation picture for us? It pictures both what will come to pass if we receive the offer of life in Jesus And what will come to pass if we reject it? It's the if. It's the if. Now, as Reformed people, we believe that ultimately God determines how we respond. But there's a mystery there because the Bible emphasizes that aspect of it, but it also equally emphasizes our personal responsibility to ask the question, what will I do with this offer of life? And that at the judgment, we will be held accountable for what we do. And we will not be able to say, I knew you were a hard taskmaster. I knew it was your fault that I would not believe. The Bible never says that would be the case. We will be fully responsible for what we do with the offer of life. It's interesting to me, the the word for take the water of life could also be translated grasp. If you grasp the water of life, what happens to you? It will grip you. If you grip it, it will grip you. And it will be enough for you in the day of judgment. Another parable that kind of pictures this for us is there's a parable called the marriage feast in Matthew 22, in which initially... Interestingly enough, it says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. So the picture is an an invitation to the kingdom of God. People are legitimately, sincerely invited and they're unwilling to come. And the king giving this feast encourages his um, servants to go out and invite others. It's a picture of the Jews rejecting Jesus and his servants going out to the Gentiles. But the picture is that all are invited, but some rejected and some come. And yet even some who show up, show up in a way that... Evidence is the fact that even in the public church, not everyone has truly received the water of life. Because there's a guy in there, the king walks in and he's overlooking uh, all the guests there at the wedding. And he notices a man who uh, doesn't have on wedding clothes. The picture is that when these people came in after responding to the invitation, they are offered wedding clothes. Well, evidently this man said, no, thank you, I think I'm good like I am. And what happens is, it says he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very sobering thing. So on the one hand, there is a real invitation, a real offer of life that anyone who will take it can take it. But if we refuse it, there is a just consequence. And that is how the Bible ends. The last words of the last words are an invitation to life. Let me just say this and I'll wrap up. I was reading an article this week uh, by someone who was talking about people who are getting involved in this transgender uh transformation thing, or they're having things done medically, and then they're beginning to regret what they've done. This Christian pastor is writing to people like that, and he's sharing the gospel with people in that situation, and he says, what has been done cannot be undone. That is correct. Talking about you can't redo what you've undone through those medical procedures. He says that is correct. There is much that cannot be reversed, but here's the good news. It can be forgiven. There are a lot of things in our lives that we cannot undo. We cannot reverse, but it can be forgiven. He says, and it can be forgiven today, as in now, like right now. And he says, and the resurrection you will be restored. Now think about that. Those who believe the lie and had their bodies mutilated, regret it, can be forgiven for that sin and know that one day their body will be new and whole again in the new heaven and the new earth. He goes on to say, turn around, turn away from the abyss, stop listening to liars there is far more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. There is far more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And that's how the Bible ends. And that is what we are to tell people in India, in Alaska, on our jobs, in our families, wherever we go. There is good news. There is more mercy in Christ. Than sin and you or I or them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that the Bible proclaims in all kinds of ways and concludes with at the very end. Help us, Lord, to believe the promise of a new heaven and a new earth one day. Help us to believe the reality of a judgment of all men through Jesus one day. But help us also hear the invitation to life and to receive that invitation if we have not yet done so. And help us as your people, both as corporately and individually, help us to say, come. Come to the water of life. His name is Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.